even if you don't feel like smiling, if you do this, you, it um, relaxes about 300 muscles in your face. It has a neurological effect. So and you can do a smiling yoga. I have a friend, Anne Cushman, I was with her just now. She teaches yoga. So I should have told her she can do the yoga of smiling. But I think it's also the awareness when we do smiling. You can't um, have a sort of unwholesome feeling at the same time as a wholesome feeling. So if you smile a little bit, if you feel that sense of well-being, then um, it's, uh, it helps you in your, in your emotional state. Anyway, am I supposed to start? Oh, okay. <laughs> I was waiting for him to give me the go-ahead. Um, sorry. It's a bit of cookie stuck on my teeth. I don't know if it's a California habit, having cookies in the middle of meditation. <laughs> it's quite interesting, anyway. Um, so here's a, a map of, sorry? It's a map of India, which you may recognize. It's a, it's a geographical map. And what I'm going to be doing is really telling you a little bit of the life story of the Buddha, which you probably, quite a few, some of you know. But also, at the same time, um, trying to slip in a few teachings. Um, so here's, this is the sort of area where the Buddha lived. And if you have questions in the middle, please feel free. Don't feel that, you know, you can just raise your hand and I can respond at that moment. Um, so this is the sort of area where the Buddha lived. This is in the green area. It's called the Gangetic Plains. The, the Ganges River, which is the main, one of the main rivers in India, serves nearly 38 to 39% of India's population. And today India's population is 1.2 billion so you can imagine this is serving about 450 million people, the Ganges and its tributaries. Um, and it's always been very uh, important to us. This is the political map of India. So it's, it's today where the, the Buddha stayed in what is called Bihar today. The word Bihar comes from the word Vihara, which means the dwelling space for monks. And Uttar Pradesh and southern Nepal is where he was born in today's geography. And at, at the Buddha's time, um, we know that he was born in a place called Lumbini. He spent his childhood in a place called Kapilavastu. And then he gained an awakening in Bodh Gaya. He spent a lot of time in Rajgir, his favorite meditation places. He went to Sarnath, where he gave his first teachings near Varanasi. And then at Kushinara, he passed away, Kushinagar. And he spent 24 hours reign retreats in Savati or Shravasti. Savati is the Pali version of the same name as Shravasti. Now, uh, the Buddha's mother, Maya Devi, this, this photograph is depicting his mother having a dream of a white elephant. And this elephant then effortlessly entered her and placed a pink lotus in her womb. That's the, that's the dream she had. When she had this dream interpreted by the famous 84 Brahmins at the time, it was interpreted as a very auspicious dream that she would have a son who would be a great, a great person, either a great king or a great teacher. And... Um, this is, incidentally, an elephant, in case you haven't seen one. So, so I showed this to kids, so it's nice. And here, so after some months, actually it's supposed to be 10 months, in India we calculate, we have a slightly different uh, calculation of months. So it's not that the child was uh, overdue, but after 10 months, the mother, Queen Maya Devi, is then going from her own home, which is called Kapalavastu, 
to Ramagama, which is her her parental home. And in India, even today, women will always go back to their own mater own maternal home. You, you, is it too loud? Okay. Okay, we'll try again. This is better, slightly better. So women tend to go back to their own maternal home for their child, especially the first child, but even uh, subsequent children, they feel much more comfortable there. So what the Queen Mahadevi was doing was exactly that. And between her husband's home and her own maternal home, there's, there was a park, a pleasure park called Lumbini Gardens. And this is what this shows. And in that, she must have been going on a bullock cart or a horse cart. And, you know, you can imagine. So labor pr probably came on and she stopped here. And at this point, she goes and stands by a tree and holds onto the branch of a tree and gives birth to a child. Um, and the child, according to some of the, the sutras, is that the child came out of the right side of the mother, you know, is supposed to have immediately said that, you know, pointed to the earth and the heaven and said, I'm the greatest that has been born ever, <laughs> probably in perfect English or in Sanskrit. <laughs> so anyway, I, it's, it's unlikely. It probably came just a normal way, you know, and the whole deification of the Buddha, I think we have to be very careful that we to understand the Buddha was a human being. I think that's very, very important as a motivation for me to, to organize these pilgrimages, to take people to the places and really uh, uh, bring alive to people that the Buddha was a human being and that he found a way out of suffering, which all of us can. So that, And the Buddha just means the awakened one. His name was Siddhartha Gautama, and we are all potential Buddhas. I feel we are all sort of part-time Buddhas. We have to become full-time Buddhas. <laughs> Sometimes our part-time is very, very mini, mini second. But if we can... We have that Buddha nature in us, and we have to just awaken to that. That's really what the Buddha was trying to tell us. And we can as human beings. And I believe in this very life. Um, this is a statue also of the nativity scene. Um, this is a second century AD statue. It's worn out like this, partly because of the rock, but also because women believe that they eat a little bit of the statue, they will have a child, a son. You know, it's a patriarchal system. It's a sort of ancient form of fertility pill or Viagra or something. And it, it seems to work quite well. It's worn down. So now the government has put a, a sort of shield so that they, uh, it gets protected. And it's out of reach. Now. So this is a tank where the Buddha and his mother are supposed to bathe, the baby child. It's still there. And um, now people say, how do you know that the Buddha was born? He was born 2,500 years ago, in the year 563 before Christ. Um, so how do you know this person was born there? Now, the Buddha in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, which is the last sutra at the time, was, which tells the last episodes of his life, including his passing away, he says that it is important that people go to the places associated with his birth, death-to-be, his first teachings, and his uh, awakening. And it'll be of great benefit. And um, so he, he sort of institutes this whole idea of a dharma yatra, or a, a pilgrimage, a dhammai pilgrimage. And so right from the time of his death, people are going to these places. Some of these places have stupas built on them, some of them have other sort of um, markings. Now, 200 years after his passing away, 218 years, a king comes onto the throne called Ashoka in the 3rd century BC, and who, after killing four of his brothers and killing another 100,000 people, suddenly has a sort of change of heart and uh, realizes that he wants to become a non-violent dharma raja, a king of following the dharma. 
and he then goes on dharma tours to all these places instead of going conquest on conquest tours and many of these places he puts pillars and this is an ashokan pillar from the 3rd century bc marking the spot where the buddha would have been born so that's how we know about these places because subsequently not only did he put the pillar but he wrote on them he inscribed in the brahmi script and on this it says on the 20th year of his reign king piyadasi beloved of the gods as ashoka came to the site and because the buddha had been born there he put this pillar and he exempted the people an eighth of their tax so it also tells you that there was a 25% tax at the time and then people only had to pay 12.5% so things like that you know so and um, so and this the deciphering of this only happened in 1837 so for many years we lost this idea of the historical buddha in a way in the middle um this is a uh for tree worship tree worship has always been a part of indian and maybe global um um religious worship in fact the depiction of the, of the buddha's mother giving birth is known as the shala bhanjaka the, the 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 tree nymph and she's leaning onto the tree and so that sort of depiction of the tree nymph giving birth or the, in fact the belief that the tree actually is a nymph in fact ashoka uh, ashoka's young wife second wife um is supposed to have poisoned the bodhi tree soon after ashoka's death because she believed that he was in love with the tree nymph of this tree rather than her so she put a thorn and a mandu thorn into this tree and the the bodhi tree is also you know considered a feminine tree but anyway these are all details but the idea of a of a sort of uh, tree worship is very important in our in our in our tradition and what this person is doing is put a statue of the buddha in the tree and uh, is worshiping that now at the time of the buddha there must, there were lots of other creatures who were obviously around and these are sarus cranes these are the tallest flying birds in the world and they hang out around the place where the buddha was born and and practice uh, and spent his childhood so it's very nice when you go to these places because you see pretty much the same sort of environment and terrain that's that's um, mustard fields and if you know there was a story about the mustard seed the famous mustard seed story the buddha tells about the woman who you know uh, wants a child brought back to life and he says go to a house where there's a you know where there's been no death and bring me a mustard seed so of course you can't but but so the idea of, so you see a, a very similar terrain a very similar uh, vegetation and so it's much easier to imagine the buddha in fact <clears throat> some i remember once i was going from patna to uh, rajgir and within about half an hour i saw what are known as the sort of four heavenly messengers i saw the dead person the sick person the old person and, and a monk and so you can still see that because in india is very naked in that way the death is outside you know sickness in you know, not put you know sort of dressed up in your death to make you look beautiful it's sort of you know you just accept it and uh, so an old age is very obvious people are sort of you know bent over so uh, in a way you can feel the teachings you know in a much more uh, poignant way so this is a depiction of a stupa <coughs> uh, where in kapalavastu where the buddha was supposed to have spent his childhood the first 29 years of his life and we don't know you know what he looked like exactly but we think he probably looked a bit like this this boy with the school smile you know if you look at the socio political situation at the time not like this grumpy one here which is <laughs> so anyway but we know that we know a little bit about the personality of the buddha the poor the buddha's mother died only within 8 days of his death of his birth so he was brought up by his 
uh, his aunt, the, the, the queen's sister. <clears throat> In fact, the king had been married to two sisters. So the, his, uh, his stepmother brought him up. And um, we know that when he was uh, about nine years old, he had his first meditation. And the time of his first meditation was the first ritual plying of the season. And when the first ritual plying took place, the king used to plough, and his father was the king at that time. And, you know, the, uh, the Brahmins are doing some chanting, and he's very bored with this whole thing. So he goes off to play under, uh, under some tree, and he hears a huge roar. So he goes back to see what's happening, and he sees this plowing going on. It's fascinating seeing a plough cut through the earth. So as he's doing, watching that, he sees that the plough cuts a worm in half. And then as he's watching, he sees that a little bird comes and pick up, picks up half the worm. And then a bigger bird comes and attacks a small bird. So this really sort of disturbs him. So he goes and sits under the tree again and just closes his eyes. And he's probably seen people meditating or, you know, he hadn't been to spirit rock, but there were probably other guys there <laughs> sitting like this. And he just uh, contemplates on what he's seen. And then when his mother comes and he opens his eyes, he says, you know, how does all that chanting help the little bird and the baby and the worm? And so you know that his sort of personality type is, is already he's reflective, he's contemplative, but also he's very compassionate. There's a story where his cousin uh, Devdath uh, shoots a swan and the, and the bird falls right in front of him in the garden. And so he immediately picks up the bird, takes, takes the arrow out and makes a little herbal poultice, some sort of Ayurvedic treatment and, and gives it, puts it on the bird and starts healing the bird. And then the brother comes, the cousin comes, says, give me my bird back. And he says, you know, it's not your bird, I found it. He says, no, I'm, I, it's my bird, I shot it. And they have this sort of argument. <clears throat> and then they bring, take it to court. And in the court, they're all the Kshatriyas, which are the rulers at the time. They are the people who, who make decisions. And they both put their case. One says, I've shot the bird, it's mine. One says, I'm giving it life, it's mine, I'm loving it. And they actually all agree with Devdath because they're warriors, they say. But the king sort of <clears throat> clears his throat and then everyone changes their vote. And they all give the bird to Siddharth. So you know, politics hasn't changed one bit. And, and um, so in a way, and the king used to take Siddharth, the young prince, to court. And Siddharth used to say nothing. And he said, why, why didn't you say anything? And he says, you know, it's no point because people have jealousy, they have greed, they have ambition. And that's what informs their way of speaking here. You know, really I have to find a way out of that. And so, so he understands uh, politics very well. And you know that later in his life when he deals with the, most, the biggest kings of the time. But he feels that that is not really what is going to alleviate people from their suffering. Now again, this sort of scene is not taken 2,500 years ago. It's taken now. You know, this is a sort of scene you see in India today uh, very commonly. Uh, no combine harvester there. Now the, the Buddha, uh, you know, because his, he's, he has a sort of rather uh, introverted uh, personality in a way and his father thinks the best way to deal with him, and his, not only his father, but his mother, his stepmother and his aunts and everyone, is to get him married. You know, that's the classic way of, you know, bind the guy, get him married. So he marries this cousin of his, Yashodra, and they're both 16, and they seem to have quite a nice relationship. But by the... But and they have no children for 13 years, which is very unusual in India. You know, that's, first you get married, then you have children. It's a lot of, there's a lot of social pressure. And... Uh, but soon after Rahul is born, the, the, the son is born, he leaves home. It's said that the son is born on an eclipse. So it's, that's why it's called Rahul. Rahul means a, a sort of fetter. 
So it's really the, there was an eclipse at that time. So then he was given that name, and it's it's an astrological uh, astronomical um, name. It's one of the planets we call Rahu. So uh, we think that what may have happened was they may have had some sort of agreement that once the son is born or once there's an heir, then he can leave, because <clears throat> he also talks about how uh, stifled he feels as in the home. And he's obviously going to meet teachers. He wants to meet other teachers, and the best teachers are in the West Coast. Not sorry. <laughs> well, in the South and and the West at the time. Now I say it because you know it's interesting. I went when I went through lots of things in my life. I was in the corporate sector. Then I went to politics, and I burnt out in politics. And I was looking for a teacher, and I knew that you have to I have to find peace in myself. I have to be peace, not just fight for peace which is my sort of political, you know, agitprop stuff. And so I started looking at teachers in India, and I went all over the place. I couldn't find a teacher suited me. And then I heard that the best teachers in the world were in the West Coast of America. So I actually came here. And I wandered up and down the West Coast for 16 months, like the Indian hippie, you know. And I met a number of very good teachers. And uh, Spirit Rock wasn't here at that time, but there was the Ojai Foundation in, in you know, Santa Barbara. I spent a long time there. I went all the way to up to Salt Spring Island and Brighton Bush and all these places, Esalen. And, and uh, I met some very good teachers. And th that's where I met uh, Thiknathan, who became my teacher, subsequent teacher. So, so that slip of the tongue was a bit... Uh, was but anyway, so the, the Buddha... I'm not that I'm... Uh, but it's just that the, the Buddha then goes south to Rajgir, to Vaishali, where the best teachers of the time are. And we know that uh, we've heard of two of the teachers by name, Arara Kalama and Udakara Maputa. And we know that the sort of teachings Alara is teaching is very, very deep, concentrative practice. Um, so to the extent that Alara once is sitting and 500 bullock carts go by and he doesn't even notice. He's, he's in such an internal absorption. And Udhakara Maputa teaches a sort of Upanishadic teaching, which is what is developing at that time in 700 BC, 600 BC. Uh, the Upanishads are developing as a sort of form of teaching. Um, so, but, and in both cases, the Buddha... He's not the Buddha yet. He's the sort of wanderer, Gautama. Um, th these words, you, Siddhartha is the name he was given at birth, and Gautama is the clan he belongs to, and Shakya is the tribe he belongs to, the Shakya Muni, the wise one of the Shakyas. And then the Tathagata is the name he gives himself, the one who comes from suchness. So uh, the, the wanderer, Gautama, then you know, the seeker, uh, is offered the, the, um, the leadership of both these schools because he masters the techniques and the ability of the teachers. But he says, no, these are not the way. They haven't, I haven't, this is not the way to overcome suffering. So he wanders on. And he comes to these mountains here, the, these hills here. And it is possible that he's, he meets, not meets, he, he practices in a form uh, of asceticism that is being practiced by another great teacher of the time called Mahavira, who is a contemporary of the Buddha and who is uh, well known as the, as the founder of the Jain religion. And their belief is very much that the, there's a soul and the body is the trap for the soul. So asceticism is the best way, and deep asceticism. So this picture is showing the Buddha during his practice, and he describes his body as saying, when he touches his stomach, he can touch his backbone, and his eyes are like deep sunken wells, and his ribs are like the rafters of a building, and his head is like a shriveled gourd, and his buttocks are like hooves of a horse. And people talk, like talking about their suffering. You know, and the Buddha was no different. He went into great detail. And um, and then he tried all sorts of methods of you know external practices of not eating very much or eating rather strange food like the half digested 
excrete over cow or you know uh, then he started trying to do stopping breathing techniques you know techniques probably jesus learned later you know about controlling his breath so and things like that so um that's a side side no it's just because ashoka you know i was telling about ashoka ashoka actually sent uh, he had missions all over the world and he sent missions to sri lanka which you heard of but he also had monasteries in syria and egypt um uh, 300 years before jesus was born 250 years before jesus was born and those 13 14 years with jesus we don't, oh, i don't know how many years he was missing 17 years we don't know where, where he was but it's quite likely there were monasteries there that he may have gone gone into those areas um but anyway so what the buddha is doing is practicing all these different techniques but he doesn't find any joy in it he finds in fact a lot more suffering so he decides finally then he's going to he's going to go and um um he's going to eat this is another statue in, in inside the cave of the where the buddha practiced this statue has now been stolen so it's, it's not lo- no longer there well, it doesn't matter it's, it's it wasn't it, was, it had just come and it'll go um this is another a few statues inside the cave which are hindu statues statue, uh, depictions of durga the the hindu goddess and so you find hindus and buddhists in the same uh, you know worshiping the same cave and so he, the buddha comes down from the caves which are around somewhere here and he comes to this river called the niranjara river and it probably had more water at the time and he then bathes because any self respecting ascetic of course doesn't bathe you know dirt falls off him hair, hair comes out in clumps so he bathes after these you know many months and he's so weak he can barely get up so he holds on to a tree and sort of just just about climbs up from the shore and he starts walking towards the village and um he collapses on the ground and a young girl about 13 is coming to the to offer some rice and milk pudding to the tree gods and he sees this she sees this man dying and she offers a little bit of this rice pudding into his mouth and he sort of takes a little bit in his mouth and then starts you know waking up and then he takes a little bit more he sits up and he starts eating and he starts talking to this girl and this is you know because he's been practicing with five other ascetics and they see him doing this they see him eating and even worse he's talking to this young girl which is like beyond the pale so <laughs> off they go they go off and he hardly notices they've gone then he comes and sits under a tree and um, which is now often known as the bodhi tree and um, starts his sort of much you know his sort of deeper individual practice Now when you go to these villages you might you might think that you know the buddha was there 2500 years ago but my intention is also to show you that the buddha is in a way there now and the way to do that is not only to see the cave and the river but to meet the people who he met this girl is from the village and you know who's and she's sujata the, the girl who was who gave the rice pudding so if you if you if you can see these because she's just direct descendant of that of the of those children of those people and uh, so you can see that you know in a way even some of the housing hasn't changed the plowing systems haven't changed of course the weather you know may have changed a little bit but not very much with global warming so the whole idea is that you you come in touch with the the historical buddha then you come in touch with the buddha today and the ideal of course is to come in touch with the buddha within yourself but that's of course you know dependent on your own practice and other causes and conditions and part of that is you know looking at your own and what the buddha taught us you know if you look at your suffering that's the starting point if we if you don't agree that there's suffering in life then you there's no starting point and um, and then you look at your own suffering you know people say well there's a lot of poverty in india you know how do we handle this but actually you look at these children they they're not very well off but you know you say well are they really suffering in that sense do we and then we look at our own suffering what is our suffering as a society 
you know, in California here. Or, so we have to look at things outside to help us in our own inner journey. And that's what pilgrimage is. You know, it's really an inner journey at the same time as your outer journey. Otherwise, it's, um, it's just tourism. So I think that's the whole purpose that we actually, it's like a, and we do it like a retreat. You know, it's like a retreat on wheels. And it's, you know, you s we have a sitting in the morning and then we have breakfast and we go to one of the sites and uh, I normally give teachings or if there's another teacher, we share teachings. And then we have walking and then lunch and then after lunch we have rest. And then we, in the evening we might go to do something interesting like seeing something deeply in India. We might go and visit some a villager's hut you know, who's a landless liberal, a villager, or we may go and see a Hindu teacher, or we may go and meet something, do something else, so you, to see the context of the teachings. And the evenings, we always have something called structs. We always share the, what struck us, S-T-R-U-C-K, structs. That's, so we, that's what struck us that day, because all of us have seen the same thing, but it's like a Dharma discussion, you know, of sharing what you saw. So everyone has their own perception of something, and you start seeing that it's not... It's not your perception, which is the only only way of looking at something. And then what starts happening is that you start traveling more like an organism than just a, a collection of individuals. And that's very powerful in pilgrimage because a collective mind like this is much more powerful. And, and um, sometimes it's much better to do a journey as, as a collect a pilgrimage, like a, a spiritual journey, as a, as a group rather than as an individual. You know, people often like traveling as individuals to certain places. But when you want to make a... A spiritual journey is better as a group because you can create a practice space. Like we're planning to go now in, um, I think next month, a few of us, uh, I met Maggie and a few others, uh, with, with Sally, who's one of the teachers here, Sally Armstrong. So I think 15, 16 of us are going on this journey. And so it's much better. Already there's a Sangha from people here. So we know each other and then the practice is much easier. So, But if you go as an individual, it's very difficult to create that space. So... And, and Sally told me to mention it, but if anybody else wants to join, you're welcome. So I, I think it'll be very nice because we'll do it in, this, in the tradition of, of, you know, of, I'm, uh, of uh, Spirit Rock. This is another child who you know, is mentioned in the Buddhist sutras, uh, Swasti, the buffalo boy who gives the kusa grass to the Buddha. You know, the Buddha, when he's sitting under the tree, um, he meets this untouchable boy. And the boy says, I love you, I, do, I want to give you something. And what, I have nothing to give. So the Buddha says, you have grass which you give to the cows, and he makes a cushion out of it. So even today when uh, children, or, I mean young people are ordained, the novices are ordained, they take a bit of this grass and put it in their cushion. They've kept that sort of tradition. And this is actually the, the, the place where the Buddha comes to sit, under the Bodhi tree. Um, this is the, called the Vajras, and the, the, the diamond throne where the Buddha sat. It's, it's a piece of stone from the 3rd century BC, which Ashoka put. And this is the tree, and, and this is where he sits. And we think he sat for probably about 49 days. And then on the last evening, when he, and through this period, of course, he's getting all these sort of doubts coming up, which are you know, often taught of as Mara. That, you, know, you can be the most powerful person in the world. You can have all the riches. You can, be, you can, rule, the, you can rule the world. You can have all the sort of uh, beautiful women, because in fact, Mara manifests his own daughters into these beautiful women. And all this, the Buddha just sees us. You know, uh, he can. He actually sees the the beauty just fading into you know into aging, and uh, the transient nature of, of what is this sort of uh, uh, seductive reality. And then he um, starts. On, it says on the last watch of the on the last night before his awakening, 
they say that that he goes through these three watches of the night and the first watch of the night he goes through all his different manifestations people say his past lives but it could be just his different manifestations and then in the middle watch of the night he then develops the law of causality of karma that every cause you know has an effect and that effect is then a cause for many other things and it's not just a cause effect cause effect but each a cause and effect has many 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 different uh, ramifications so it's a bit like this image of the indra's net that we have in the dhamma where every node of the net then reflects every single other node and that's really the understanding of inter- interdependence or in- interpenetration or dependent co-arising whichever way you want to look at it but that's a, his his sort of understanding and then in the in the third watch of the night as the as the sort of morning star appears he then develops the law or, or the uh, the the four noble truths and that formulation of the four noble truths uh, where you know that there's suffering or there's disease or you know because we don't get what we want or we're with people we don't like or you know we are away from people we love or aging sickness old age all all that sort of grasping and then he says well there's a cause for that and it's it's very much like a doctor looking at a disease or disease and saying well this is the disease so then the first thing the doctor says well is there a cause for it and the buddha looks for the cause and he says yes there's a cause for it and whether it's whichever interpretation whether it's avidya which is ignorance or craving whatever the different ways of looking at what he says is is the cause and then he says with the third noble truth he says well uh, you know there's an end of this there's uh, nirodha the the absence of of suffering and that is sort of good news of buddhism because when there's when because what happens is we have to understand this language that when there's a uh absence of something that means there's a presence of something else so there's absence of suffering that means there's well-being it's like if there's the absence of darkness there's light so it's not that you know because people talk about buddhism being sort of pessimistic he's only talking about suffering but actually what he's talking about is joy and happiness and well-being because that's what the third noble truth is and then he tells us the practice for that which is the eightfold path which is very well thought out in terms of both external and internal practices you know the right speech and livelihood is and and you know different medit- mindfulness and concentration etc so that's what he develops here and that's really the core teaching of the buddha and i think many many teachings which have developed after that are really based primarily on this on this teaching and so many different schools and so many different teachers and interpretations of the last 2500 years so then when he gets up from there uh, he 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 spends another seven weeks just enjoying himself there because he's so blissed out and he says wow you know and um, and so he spends a week under the tree another week doing walking meditation another week looking at the tree and um and of course now what's happened here is the same place which we saw somebody's put all this gold and then they put some plastic on top of the gold and then they put a lock to protect the plastic maybe the gold had, anyway the and the guy who put it here the president of sri lanka he got shot after that and not for this i'm sure some but anyway so and um and then there's the but of course the tree itself is our spiritual ancestor and it's lovely to have a uh, a tree as the sort of spiritual center of the dhamma of the, of the buddha dhamma it's a growing entity the original tree is no longer there it's like buddhism died in india in the 12th 13th century so we don't you know but but it's grown in other places so the tree is like that and now you've got new branches you've got you know uh, a branch of you know buddhism in america so it's like it's like a new branch here it's how we cultivate the branch and there's another country called california we've got a new branch there so we we got you know how we it's how we look after the tree 
is how we cultivate the Dharma in the world. And we talk of this area as the navel of the earth. This is known as the navel of the earth. So you can imagine that the tree is growing, in a sense, in, in that way and, connect, and connecting us as an umbilical cord all across the Dharma world. Now, at this point when the Buddha gets awakened under the tree, it is said that Mara, his self-doubt, says, who, who knows you've done this? Who's, uh, who knows that you've actually attained this awakening or you've practiced like this? And then he touches the earth and he says, the earth is my witness. So this whole sort of understanding of earth as Gaia or the ecological understanding of the earth is very much there at the Buddha's time, with the Buddha. And there's supposed to be an earthquake and the earth shakes. Uh, he, he does it with his right hand. This photograph, unfortunately, has been uh, tweaked upside down when it is being put up. And this is the, uh, the temple at Bodh Gaya. And um, it's, it's a bit like a virtual tour. I think Andy was interested in a tour today. So it's like a sort of virtual tour to these places. And I'm all, I mean, there are lots of friends who, who are here also who've been on the journey. So I'm glad, you know, people like Pamela and Burke and... Richard and, uh, of course, Walt and Sarah and Patrick and Abigail. I think that anybody else who's been before? Okay. So, yeah. And um, so these are places which are sort of, the, we, we know that this temple was not there in the early part of the 5th century, but it was there later in the 5th century. So sometime in the 5th century it was built. We don't know who built it. Some people say two brothers. Um, but if you look at the location of it, it's next to the tree. This is the tree, and this is the temple. So the tree, actually, poor chap, uh, poor thing, doesn't can't work towards, can't, can't grow towards the temple. So it always has to be. It's, it's always growing sideways, and it's getting propped up by large iron bars, and um, so that no wonder it dies from time to time. It's just like. <laughs> so anyway, and what happens at these places is you get pilgrims from all over the world. It's, it's wonderful because you see all these different practices, different forms of Dhamma, different forms of practice from all across the world coming to these places. So, um, and, and this is my own teacher, Tiknathan, who took me in 88. Um, I was brought up in a, very, in, an area, in, in a place called Patna, which is very close to this place. So I used to go as a child to these places. And, <clears throat> but the Buddha was never really my, my teacher at that time. We saw Buddha as some sort of god. And it was only in 88 when Thiknathan took me and re- literally sort of led me by the hand and explained to me the whole life story and the, in, a, in a way which um, brought the Buddha alive to me. After that, at the end of the journey, he said, well, you seem to enjoy it, so why do you do it every year? This is what the Buddha suggested as a practice. And so I started doing it every year. And then after a few years, people said, can I come with you? And then the whole thing just you know, evolved from there. And I think... Um, it is something which is an important practice, and uh, you see the, pil- the practice of pilgrimage in many religions. You know, you see it in Islam, of course, is one of the five main pillars of Islam. You see it in Christianity, in, in Hinduism. <clears throat> Out of the 160 million people who travel in India, according to a recent statistic, not so recent, a few years ago, they said 160 million people travel in India. How many people travel on pilgrimage, do you think, out of the 160 million? Pretty close. 150 million. So that's the main reason why people travel. So it, the, it's for a sort of spiritual purpose. So I think what, you know, it's not that you always have to go, you, you can create pilgrimage space in India, in America. For me, you know, like I said, parts of California are like pilgrimage places for me. And so we all have our pilgrimage. I mean, 
people, what's that? Graceland is a pilgrimage place for people, <laughs> you know. So it's what, what is our own trip in life. But if you have a, um, a sort of spiritual practice with the Dhamma, with the Buddha Dhamma, I think it's very important to, to touch the place of where the source, of the source of, of Buddhism. And then you can come back and sit under the manzanita tree or something, and that can become your Bodhi tree. But sometimes you have to go to the, under the Bodhi tree to realize that. So I would always recommend that, you know, as, as something is an important practice. And, and I feel that um, it's, those of you who've been, you know, it's not an easy place to go. And it's good, but it's good to go in a good... I mean, India is a great teacher herself. And so, but, so to do it in the context of the teachings is really what is good. Otherwise, you sort of, you know... I mean, India bombards all your senses. You know, you, so it's how to handle that. And, uh, you know, when I said it's a retreat on wheels, it's more like a sort of, you know, Zen Sashin of 14 hours sitting, boom. You know, so it's, it's, it's hitting you all the time. And it's, but that's what uh, practice is there for, and Sangha is there for, to help you with. So here, a number of Tibetan practitioners coming. You know, Tibet suffering is India's fortune in a way. Uh, because Tibetans have brought back Indian, some of the Indian uh, Buddhist teachings of the 7th century, which have been lost in India. And many different types of worship, forms of worship, but it's, you know, lighting candles, uh, putting prayer flags. This is an interesting photo of a, of a monk who's blind, who's doing walking meditation. And at the time of the Buddha, the same thing has happened, and there's a story where the Buddha is, uh, some of the monks come to the Buddha and say, look, that monk is killing insects, you know, he's breaking the precepts. And the Buddha says, no, he's blind, he doesn't know, his intention is not to kill. Now amongst the Jains, who is a contemporary of the Buddha, Mahavira, they say, no, the act is more important than the intention. But for Buddhists, the intention is more important than the act. So I think that's always good to remember, to, to always check back on our intention. Why am I doing this? What is this? You know, and um, that's important, that our, an intention has, has a wholesome nature in it. Now, those of you who've been to Bodh Gaya, how many have been to Bodh Gaya? How many? Uh, so, quite a lot, yeah. So, you know, it's um, it's really a bit like a, uh, I don't know, Buddhist Disneyland. Uh, I mean, you've got all the sort of, you know, uh, the different temples in the different countries. It's very powerful in its own way. And yet you've got, you know, this is like the the Thai temple, this is the Tibetan temple, it's about, you know, 500 yards away. This is about the Bhutanese temple. And if you just literally cross over the, over the wall, you come to Japan. So you don't need a passport or visa or anything. And then you can practice with all these different traditions. You can go at 5 o'clock in the morning to sit Zazen with the Soto monks here. And then at 6 o'clock you can go, you know, the, this, the, the horns. And, the, and then you can go in, you know, just, uh, to the Thai monks after a little while. So anyway, the Buddha, after his, his seven weeks of under the tree and enjoying himself, then decides he's going to teach, because you know, he hasn't really set off the idea of teaching. And then he, so, um, he first thinks of his, three, of his earlier two teachers, and he meets um, uh, Ajivaka. Ajivaka is another, there were, there were lots and lots of different types of uh, spiritual traditions at the time. The Ajivakas are, are, are great determinists. They believe everything is determined. You know? Like, this cookie is, I mean, I had no choice. This is predetermined that I was going to eat this or not eat this cookie at this moment. So anyway, the Ajivaka is passing by and the Buddha says, you know, do you know these two teachers, Alara Kalama and Udakaramaputta? And he says, yes. And he said, they both died recently. And then the Buddha says, do you know the five 
five ascetics and he says yes they're practicing in the deer park in Isipatana near Varanasi so the Buddha decides to go and teach but this Ajivaka asked the Buddha an interesting question a normal question which we do he said who's your teacher and the Buddha says I have no teacher I'm the one who's found the way and this Ajivaka says oh big deal <laughs> and he goes off the other way and that's very nice because in a way it shows you that not everyone is going Ooh, you know immediately the, and the Buddha is also so and then the Buddha goes across he goes you know, this is a very typical site in India. It's actually on the road between Bodh Gaya and Varanasi. It takes him 14 days. It takes us about six hours now, five hours. And, uh, you know, children with their goats. And this is on the road. This is Avaz Do, which is saying, make a noise. It's telling you to horn. So because the guy doesn't use his rear view mirror. He, when you horn, then you know you're behind him. He knows you're behind him. So he'll move to the side. The Buddha arrives in, in Varanasi. Um, I, should, I should go faster now, then I, we can have a little time for questions if you have. Um, we're supposed to finish at 9.15, is that right? Okay. So, um, so the Buddha arrives at Varanasi, at Saranath, and he's... Um, the, the five ascetics don't even want to acknowledge his presence, but more or less involuntarily they get up because his presence is so, uh, has such bearing. And they bring a stool and they wash his feet and give him some water. And then they say, welcome, brother. And he says, oh, not brother anymore. You know? I found the way. They said, how could you? Have you, you left the path. You know, you... And they said, he said, well, have I ever lied to you? And they said, no. Then he said, sit down and listen. And then he teaches the middle way, not getting caught in asceticism or in you know, sensual pleasures, not getting caught in the ideas of being and non-being. And then he teaches the Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path, which is the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma Chakra Parivartana Sutra. And uh, in that, uh, uh, one of the monks becomes awakened at that point, Gondanya. And this is the statue of that, of that uh, moment. And uh, it's my favorite statue in the world. It's sort of, I, I find if you go there, it has such a meditative quality. And this is not a very good picture, unfortunately. So that's why I made these. Oops. So I made these posters, and I've got some there. If anybody wants, you can have one. And um, it's it's got soft advertising on the side, but that's but the main purpose is this. It's, it's really a nice poster. And uh, you can't get this picture now anymore because if you can't take photographs. And, the, and these are the five fellow, first five ascetics. The, this is the woman who donated the statue probably in her child. This is the wheel of the law being turned. This is the deer, the deer park. But actually, when you look at the statue... It's really trying to get you from the, the person to the teachings, from the Buddha to the Dhamma. Because when you look at the face, and immediately he's got his downcast eyes, it's the inward gaze, and you, you move immediately down to there. That's where it focuses. So you really, the center point of this, uh, uh, geometrically, is, is here. And that's the teaching. And so what the Buddha is doing at that point is, you know, first noble truth, second noble truth, third noble truth, like that. So the idea of mudras or hand gestures is very important because it transcends language. So the, because Buddhism traveled all over, you know, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, everywhere, and without you know people knowing necessarily the language. So this is where the teachings were first given at Sarnath. This is the Dhammic stupa at Sarnath, the deer park. It's a long shot of the same thing. There was another. There was another uh, uh, large stupa here, which was nearly as large as the other one. 
And uh, there in 1794, the local king wanted to build a marketplace in Varanasi. And he saw a lot of bricks doing absolutely nothing. So he just dismantled all the bricks. And he built this market, which still exists in Varanasi, called Jagat Ganj Market. And, but one of the things that they found when they were dismantling the stupa was they found a large stone box with some relics. And so the, the local minister, um, Jagat Singh, he took the relics and put them in the, in the Ganges, like any good Hindu should. But, they, but the British, who were sort of ruling India at that time, or thought they were ruling India, um, they used to write everything down. You know? And Indians don't like writing anything down. I mean, Indians, like, we only write down things which are unimportant, like accounts. <laughs> Otherwise, and anything important is memorized. But the, the Chinese like writing things down, the, and the British like. So when, and it's very good they wrote it down, because somebody read that this, these relics have been thrown in the Ganges. And then they discovered those relics of the Buddha. And that's how we rediscovered these places. Because these places had all been overrun. There were pigs grazing there. Nobody really knew what they were for. So in a sort of, it is a sort of a positive collateral damage. Um, this is a, a symbol of the Republic of India. It's also a symbol of Ashoka from the 3rd century BC. And it's the four lions, the lions roar. And um, also um, showing great peace and prosperity. And this is the wheel of the Dhamma, uh, which is also the symbol of, of the, on the Indian flag, the modern Indian flag. So you have these two symbols of India, of, of Buddhism, as symbols of modern Republic of India. And you find the people like Nehru, who was the first prime minister, and Ambedkar, who was the first law minister, were, were really very strongly influenced by Buddhism. Ambedkar actually converted or embraced Buddhism six weeks before he died. And Nehru, we know, uh, I heard from his great-grandson, used to carry a, a, a picture of the Buddha in his pocket. Um, and it's interesting, this, you know, the, the imagery of the lion actually came from Persopolis in Iran, and there were probably Iranian artisans who did this. So you can see that this is 3rd century BC. All this trade and interaction is already taking place. This is a, one of the teachers from, from New York, Pat O'Hara. And she's meeting a, 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 a Theravadan nun um, who has just been ordained at that time. And this is, this is very controversial ordination because it, you know, within the Theravadan order, there were no nuns. Now... <clears throat> this is where Maggie wants to go, or Maggie's daughter wants to send her. This is the, this is the uh, Maggie's one of our friends who's going with Sally. And uh, this is the Ganges at, at dawn. And uh, it's very important to understand uh, Buddhism in the context of other religions. It's not that Buddhism exists on its own. It's in the context of Hinduism or Islam or, you know. And uh, so now people come to the river to bathe in the mornings. Every morning they'll come. It's a sort of ritual bathing. And if you bathe on a particular time and an auspicious uh, occasion, the sins of, not just your sins, but sins of seven generations are washed away. So uh, people have been doing this for, you know, as far as we know, thousands of years. And so the Buddha, in his sort of rather caustic sense of humor, said, well, the, the holiest people must be the fish and the turtles then. <laughs> so, he wasn't liked very much there at all. He was, he was sort of... Um, in fact, and these are people who feel that even clothes are too much of a bother. So the, the, sort of the traditions of, you know, um, they are sadhus, the people who have left their home and left. In, within the Hindu traditions often, when you become a monk like this, then you, you break your bonds with society, you change your name, you change your, and you actually, um, uh, yeah, don't, you cut off from your family. Unlike Buddhist monks where, who will still look, look after their, their parents and things if, if they're ill. Um, 
I skipped this. Well, okay. Now I can't well, I better tell you now. This is, uh, um, this, is a monk, uh, this is a teacher about 108 years old. He was 108 for a number of years. 108 is a very auspicious number. <laughs> according, so according to eat, work, pray, or whatever it's called. And it's, it is, a, and all the malas are like that. But this chap, uh, there was a Christian priest who came on our trip, and he asked him, he said, have you seen God? And he says, yes, of course I've seen God. And he said, oh, so what did God look like? So I'll tell you in my next slideshow. No, anyway, so, so, so he said, what a good, so he said, well, she was about 35 years old and had long black hair. And so that was quite nice. And so uh, then I said, well, he said, how, I was meditating and a tiger was about to attack me and da, da, da. And then I saw this God, you know. So in, in the Hindu tradition, and it's very nice, you can see God in whichever way or form she or he manifests. Could be in your child, could be in a stone, could be in a woman of 35, 40 years old. It could be a man with, you know, long white hair in the heaven. But one thing I was telling Walt, he was saying, you know, when you come to the Dhamma room, so I was saying, yes, we, uh, I, I'd seen your Dhamma hall here, and it's beautiful. But I was saying that the, the image of the Buddha, you know, I'm still looking for a Western Buddha. You see, now, if you look at Buddhism spread everywhere, you see Japanese Buddhas, Chinese Buddhas, you know, but I haven't seen a Western Buddha, you know, and somebody was like this maybe square jaw, maybe a woman, you know, it could be a woman Buddha. So I'm just, next time maybe we can develop or design Maybe, I don't know, based on Brad Pitt or I don't know who, <laughs> what model you want to use. Maybe Walt is a good model anyway. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> but some, uh, maybe Sarah can be the model. Uh, so we just, but I think it's, it's good to, to bring that home to us, that uh, the Buddha doesn't have to be some sort of person who, who's very far away from our, from our culture. There's some land given to the Buddha called the, Deer pa, called the Bamboo Grove in Rajgir by one of the most powerful kings of the time called uh, King Bimbisara. And um, this is us. In fact, Mary Orr is one of your teachers. She's here. There she is, sitting here, We're telling stories at uh, at Deer Park, at, at at the Bamboo Grove. So this is the sort of you know every day we we'll sit, and um, this is this is the 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 path going up to Vulture Peak, which is the Buddha's favorite meditation place. And this path was built two thousand five hundred years ago because the king would go and visit the Buddha. And this is the Buddha still sitting there. Those of you who recognize uh, this. One of the 32 signs, the big ears. It's, um, that's Thiknathan's big ears. And, um, so, and Thiknathan always said that that's where his realization came. When he went up Pajja Peak, he saw with Buddha eyes or touched the earth with Buddha feet. Um, and so all the monks and nuns who go with him get ordained. The Buddha used to also come here. He used to come to the hot springs. It was probably less crowded at the time. Uh, he was advised if those who, he had some sort of arthritic pain. There's a women's section here in case you're interested on the side. And um, so these people seem to be enjoying themselves. And this is one of my heroes, Xuanzang, the Chinese chronicler who comes uh, in the seventh century, tells us a lot about what is happening in the University of Nalanda, takes back the Yogacara teachings to, to, to China. And this is the famous Nalanda University from the fifth to twelfth century. This is really the center of learning in the world. Uh, Oxford, I think, started in 1160s, and this was destroyed in 1192. So for seventh century, it had been the, the main center of learning in the world. People from Korea, from China, Japan, Indonesia were coming here to study medicine, astronomy, of course, Buddhist scripture, uh, logic. This is the, the monk's cells. I'm sort of speeding up. I suddenly realized that my time is the eight-sided well. Hindu pilgrim taking water back from... You know, pilgrimage is always something which is, you know, it's not just about... Uh, I mean, people like to take things like water or earth because, you know, and then you share it with your family. But also the real thing you're taking back is, you know, your, 
what you've learned, your patience, your humility, your uh, ability to look at the world in a different way. And so this is what, on, on Christmas one day, this is Susan Murphy, I think she's in this Bay Area. Um, she's, so we're having Christmas cake, and, this, and you know, this, these beds, even if you read the sutra, when the Buddha used to come, this, these beds used to come out. So they, they're called the, the sort of robe beds. So even 2,500 years later, that sort of technology is still a living technology. And this is a hotel we stay at. I just showed it because, you know, luckily the Japanese became Buddhist, so they have all these sort of clean places to stay. Uh, you know, they're, so, yeah. they're trying to build golf courses too, which I'm sort of objecting to, but uh, the hotels are good. In fact, this one is supposed to have some, uh, the Lonely Planet guide used to say, the best sushi in India. And it's a really way out place in the middle of, you know, it's called Rajgir. It's, um, I used to work a number of years with the UN and I used to work with artisans. So I always feel, you know, to introduce people to artisans, see that how they manifest culture, and to see the culture of India through the people who live there, have discussions with them about whether it's, you know, organic agriculture, or whether it's about uh, other things, um, marriage. This is the, the Jetta Grove, the famous Jetta Grove, where the full awareness of breathing sutra was given, and the Buddha spent at least 18 of his rain retreats there, and another six close by in Shravasti. And this land was given to the Buddha by Anathapindika, a famous donor who was pouring the water over the tree, the symbol of the Buddha, and laying the land with gold coins. You know, the, the, the way Anathapindika bought this land was he bought it from this Prince Jetta, and Prince Jetta didn't want to sell it. So then he kept insisting, and Prince Jetta sort of out of exhaustion sort of said, well, if you cover the land with gold, and he says, done. And he says, no, no, I didn't want to sell it. And Prince Jetta said, I just named, I said it like that. And he said, well, and they got lawyers in. He said, there were lawyers at that time too. And they said, well, if you named a price, that means you're willing to sell. If you, wouldn't, if you didn't want to sell, you wouldn't have named the price. And you can't go back on your word because once you become king, then people won't believe you. But Prince, so he does, but he gets the names, Jetta Grove. And actually what happens is you should always be careful if you buy land in India. You buy the land, and then they say, but you didn't buy the trees. <laughs> so you have to pay extra for the trees. So this Prince Jetta says, Jetta Grove, Anathapindika Rama. But Jetta gets the name. But what is interesting is Anathapindika brings a lot of his business friends to meet the Buddha. And the Buddha often talks uh, to business people and talks about right livelihood and, and he, in one of his talks to, the, to businessmen he talks about uh, he says drishti dharma sukha vihara which means live happily in the present moment and he says it five times he says businessmen get caught a lot you know in the future they're suffering so and he then talks about how you can use your money in divide into four he says put 25% for your living what you use for your living every day and 25% to reinvest in your business and 25% for a rainy day, which is like sort of insurance or whatever you, you know, to keep as, uh, you know, whatever for your later in age. And 25% you give dana to social or uh, spiritual uh, things. So he's very practical. And he, and he says, you know, there's great happiness being a businessman. Um, you know, you, you're not in debt. You, you're, you make your, if you make your living honestly and things like this. So he was very worldly in that way. And in politics also, he helped kings in how to deal with their country, how to deal with neighboring countries, how to have peace in their own country. <clears throat> These are two monks who are rather elderly, and they've become monks very late in life, and they're from the sort of so-called untouchable groups in India. And there's a huge movement of um, so-called untouchables becoming Buddhist. Uh, it's a sort of socio-political movement and inspired by a man called Ambedkar. And his way is that the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, is the, the cause is external. It's the social and political causes that are causing the suffering, not your internal angst. 
So his three words are educate, agitate, organize. You know. So there's a sort of, a, but it's a, but they're all Buddhist. So now, and so we are. It's there's work to be done in a way of seeing. You know, um, yeah, people are getting interested in the Dhamma now, but they use the Bible. The, their Bible is the Buddha's, the Ambedkar's book, and and so the, and in the Indian tradition. You don't become a monk till late on in life. You don't go into spiritual work until late on in life. Your first part is brahmacharya. You're sort of, you're a student, and then you go into householding, then you go into social work, and then you go into spiritual life. So that's that tradition of the of the four stages of life has been brought in by the Buddhists. So you find if you find the monks that they're nearly all is very old. And these are women coming on pilgrimage. Now they're also that's the way to Buddha is through Ambedkar. This is a friend Larry Rosenberg who's a teacher in. Boston, and he's walking exactly where the Buddha walked, from the place where the and it's said in the sutras the Buddha used to walk every morning in this place, you know, and so he's to walking meditation. So that's why I call this thing in the footsteps of the Buddha. You're literally walking in the footsteps of the Buddha. This is a story of Angulimala. Is one of the friends who was playing Angulimala. It's one of the the, the, the ter- terrorist who was converted. Who embrace Buddhism. These are some other friends and sort of companions on the way. Um, this is the, in Kushinagar where the Buddha finally, at the age of 80, comes and lies down. This slide is also upside down. He watches, watching the sunset. And as I was saying, his he talks to everyone and says, <coughs> you know, other teachings well understood. And then when he closes his eyes, he says, all conditioned reality is subject to decay. Strive on diligently, which basically means everything's impermanent. Give up the practice. So even in his last words, he's basically teaching. And then he gets cremated, and then, you know, there's a nice, beautiful stupa now where, where he was cremated. And this is a friend of mine who'd come a few years ago. She had cancer. She was going to die. You know, she knew. I mean, well, I guess I can lay bet all of us are going to die. That's 100% guaranteed. Most of us don't believe it when we're living. But, but she knew. And she had been diagnosed with very advanced stage of cancer. So her doctor said, don't go to India, you know. And her friends said, don't go to India. And she was just alive. She was just like, she had no problems. She was completely well. In fact, she wanted to carry on staying in India after that. And I said, no, I can't take responsibility. You ask your doctor. And they said, no, come back. And anyway, but anyway, she was really well. And what, what happened with her was because she was so aware of her death, she just became a bundle of love. She was just like exuding love everywhere. You know, there was something shifted in her. And so uh, she's an English woman. And she died soon after, but really um, a wonderful uh, teacher for me. And there's just a Buddha sitting up there uh, <laughs> with a smile. And this is the continuation, the Bodhi tree coming out of the cremation stupa. 9.15. So I don't know if you're allowed two questions or not. But, uh, what, is, what is the rule? Anybody want uh, one, two questions? No, the first statues. No, the first statues of the Buddha came actually with Greek influence in the f- uh, first century BC, um, and they come from the northwest. So, in fact, the Buddha forbade any statues or depictions made of him. So we don't know what the Buddha looked like at all. Yeah, and you, the first Buddha statue, you see the Gandhara knot with with the togas and you know with mustache, and looking very much like like Zeus, like the Greek gods.
Don't feel shy. You can ask your neighbor to ask. <laughs> okay, then, yeah. Yeah, Richard, yeah. Well, I think um, um, I think with with practice, what happens is that there's a very slow shift, and I see that my own awareness and um, uh, presence at being the places has shifted. It's like our own. So I treat it like a practice, and um, of course, the familiarity of the place is important to me. So I get to know many more people. I know the, the social nuances, whether it's the, the the beggar and her father and mother and the next generation coming up the next so they're all people to me and but I think what uh, I learn the most from is the other pilgrims who come in a way because I'm seeing also uh, I get a, I'm very fortunate that I get people from different traditions coming and so I learn from everyone really so I think yeah people say how do you go to the same place when you get bored and I said no I'm meeting my teacher every time I'm just really happy you know I, I just love going to Kushinagar and, and each place I get a slightly different insight sometimes I may be sitting by the cremation stupa and I see the mist rising and some it feels like um, the, the, the cremation is going on right there you know in front of me um, so they're different different views but I think it's just it's like any practice you do you know you slowly become more and more familiar with it and then it becomes part of your life you know it's just and I think meeting the Buddha is really, I, I've just got to know him much, much better. I think that's, and I've got to know the Buddha as, as a psychological state also. What would, I, you know, I saw a sticker in Long Island once, once I was in America, it says, what would the Buddha do? And it's a good koan to have. I, I think I know what the Buddha would do in many, many cases. Now, I, I mean, I know him well enough to say that, ah, oh. so that's what the Buddha would do. Richard, and anybody who wants to comment on, uh, on something, yeah. Ambedkar. Well, they're looking for social transformation. You see, they're coming out of, the, out, of, out of a system which has kept them down for many, many years, for thousands of years, on a social grid. <clears throat> so it is a social uh, transformation and, a, and a, a way of self-affirmation. But it's not necessarily a spiritual path. But you can say that is a spiritual path also. You know, moving out of any sort of, consciously moving out of an oppressive state is a spiritual path. Ambedkar was very smart. He took Buddhism, which was an Indic, Indic civilizational, civilizational religion, and then twe- tweaked it for his own purposes. But I think what is happening with the educated young is that they are getting more and more interested in the spiritual path. And I'm, I'm hoping that also. It's, it's partly a hope. But yes, it, it isn't, uh, people are not coming to it from a spiritual, conventionally spiritual angle. Yeah. And, and also, if anybody would, who's been or would like to share anything, you're very welcome. Uh, we'll have the last two minutes of... Thank you. Are there any Buddhist teachers that are taking people all the way into a state, a permanent state of enlightenment or self-realization? Okay. 
Well, I, you know, I think it's all on our own journey. And we have to, I think the teachings, the Buddha always said, you know, don't get caught in this, look at the moon. So I think many, many teachers are showing us the right finger. They're, they're showing us the path. All a teacher can do is that. You have to do the, walk the path. So they're excellent teachers. I think some of the, you know, I, I went to the bookshop just now. The, the, it's filled with wonderful teachings. So I think um, they are awakened teachers, I think, even today. I think there are some more awakened than others. And uh, some walk the talk, in a way. And, and we, we can use them as inspiration. I use the Buddha as an inspiration. I use, I use people like His Holiness Dalai Lama as an inspiration. I use Thich Nhat Hanh as an inspiration for me. So, uh, but I also use my daughter as an inspiration, you know, who's six years old. I mean, she doesn't think she's my teacher, but she's my teacher. So in a sense, uh, we have to look at, you know, everything is our teacher. Everyone, the grasshopper, the, everyone is, is in a way our teacher. But so, and that moment of awakening comes from um, not necessarily uh, wanting it. You see, it's, it's more that you're just with what you're doing and an intuitive wisdom arises from time to time. So you could be just doing walking or washing a dish or driving a car. It doesn't always have to be, you know, sitting in some sort of, you know, great dhyanic state. Um, so, but it is good to know how to develop concentration, how to develop mindfulness practice, how to, you know, um, develop absorption, things like that. It's important. I mean, that's, it helps you to attain that awakened state. But I, I think no teacher can actually zap you. Some teachers say they can zap you, you know. There's kundalini, blah, 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 I'll touch you and, you know, your chakras will open. Don't believe it. I, I've been there before. I've tried a lot of stuff before I came to the Dhamma. I've tried a lot of Hindu teachings. And, and you bliss out. You, you can bliss out for a long time, but blissing out is not the practice. You know, that's what the Buddha said. I mean, he, he said, yeah, you can be in a blissed out state going, you know, Hare Rama, Hare Krishna. So it's, you know, Om Namah Shivaya, they're great. But, you know, find you, come down and hit reality. There's people without drinking water, the people in jail, your own suffering. Then that's not doing it. So I think it's our own path. We have to walk it ourselves. And um, when we get glimpses of, uh, of uh, well-being, then that gives us the faith in the practice. Because we know, okay, we can be less angry, we can be more loving. And that's... Yeah. It's just the path, really. That's what I see it as. I just see it as a path. Thanks, man.
I do tell people or friends of mine who travel any place that, that that was a really a very rich part mm. of, that, of that journey. That mm. In fact, a few days ago, yeah, somebody was t- saying oh, that's, that he socially engineers the thing. And he mentioned about Strux. He was saying this trip, is, he socially engineers it. And this is, the Strux is a very important part. You're right. And actually also the cultural, um, uh, how do you say, the culture shock often is when you come back and you see the familiar with the sh- slightly shifted lens. Then you know that, okay, that's a, there's a journey that's taken place within because you see, you know, whatever your familiar surroundings are. And uh, I think uh, Sarah was saying, she said, she, you know, it is like a shock coming back to, it is, everything was ordered. People were driving on the right, on, you know, I mean, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, but... Uh, but anyway, so that is, I think, um, yeah, that's very important that we reflect on every day and, we, and every day is a journey, really. Pilgrimage is a matter for life, so we can reflect every day on it, like have a struck every day. I do that every evening, try and just stop and think what happened during the day and what struck me today. So, and um, and also I, I put these leaflets out here at the end, if you want to pick up one or two or three or whatever, and you're very welcome. And and um, yeah, and we do also other stuff in India. There's a, if you want to go on your own ever, there's a nice book which we wrote up about walking with the Buddha. So it tells you how to go. And we're doing a lot of work with kids now in schools. Uh, we're trying to bring Dhamma into schools. We have a trust and we're trying to do this. So now we're trying to link up with people in America. Tomorrow, in fact, I'm meeting some people who are doing that here. So, you know, there are lots of things happening across the world. And um, come and visit us. You know, we are, we are there for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.